sermon this morning. I'm, I, I guess I get to give the announcements, but I have very few announcements to give. But just to um, thank you so much for your participation in this body, and I want to state, if I haven't done so uh, adequately yet, how grateful I am for the privilege of being able to serve you. I've been meeting with the elders, and I meet with the, uh, the search team some, and I decided that this month, as uh, we ponder the future, direction of this church that we'd spend the month praying. I, one of the main verses that I claim when I think in terms of, um, of a pastor search or a process for, the, for any church is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally. And so the most important thing it seems to me that any church can do as, you're, as we're facing decisions is to ask of God because he promises that he is the one who will give us his wisdom and that's what we want we don't want our wisdom it's not that good but we want his so as we focus this month on, on Christmas on Jesus coming and next week I'm going to start a, a brief series on the Christmas story um, let's focus on on uh, him and on prayer and then we'll revisit all of this in the new year but I'm going to switch locations now and go up on by that pulpit. And um, as I do so, I'm going to uh, remind you of, of probably the most common, what shall I call it, mantras, I guess you could call it, of our culture. It's one of our most prominent themes, and it's, you can do it. Have you heard that before? Ice Cube and Dolly Parton both have written songs you can do it their book titles by Tony Dungy and Charles Schultz and Joel Osteen telling us you can do it TV programs like Barney and Friends remind us again you can do it posters everywhere broadcast you can do it Graduation speeches, almost all of them, are a variation on the theme, you can do it. And quotes, oh my goodness, there are thousands of them. Check it out on the internet yourself, I did. Napoleon Hill, a self-help author. If you can do it, you can do it if you believe you can. This is Walt Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. This is Demi Lovato. No matter what you're going through, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it may seem hard to get to it, but you can do it if you keep moving towards it. This is the Arnold Schwarzenegger. The mind is the limit. As long as the mind can envision the fact that you can do something, you can do it as long as you really believe a hundred percent. This is Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO. The question really is, are you improving the world? You can do that. This is Dionne Dion Warwick, the singer and actress. My motto in life is, if you think it, you can do it. And if, all, and if we apply that thought, we can end hunger all over the world. This is perhaps the greatest gymnast of all time, Simone Biles. 
I would say to always follow your dream and dream big because my whole career, including any of the things I've accomplished, I never thought in a million years that I would be here. So it just proves that once you believe in yourself and you put your mind to something, you can do it. This is Maxine Waters, member of the House of Representatives. Everyone has a part to play. We have the power. You can do it. This is Jackie Collins, novelist. I write about the American dream. If you set your mind to do something, you can do it. This is someone named Bernadette Logue. I don't know who that is. Are you facing a challenge in your life? Or wanting to excel in achieving a goal? The worst thing is to be believing, thinking, a feeling in your life that I can't. The second you go there, you disempower yourself completely. The mantra, I am strong, I can do this, when used in a specific way, will draw out of you an inner strength that you might not realize you have. You can do it. It is perhaps the most common mantra of all of America. And clearly, a can-do attitude, hard work, persistence, oftentimes pays off. And we have many, many examples of that. However, this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to rain on the parade of the you-can-do-it people, because he is going to teach us today, no, you can't. The sermon I entitled today is, spiritually, we can't do it. And you see, one of the most important things about Christianity that makes it unique in the history of all religions is perhaps the fundamental principle of all of Christianity is you can't do it. And until you realize, no, I can't do it, you are not a candidate for the kingdom of God, unfortunately. Because perhaps the most important work the Holy Spirit has been working incessantly from the first human beings that have ever been on this planet is to teach us the fact that we can't do it without God's help. Because we failed. All of us have sinned and fallen immeasurably short of the glory of God. We can't do it. So today, I'm going to take on all these hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of speakers and people and posters and books and even movies and speak from the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 of Ephesians. No, you can't do it. How do I know that? Well, let me review where we've been. Because today, at the end of the sermon today, we'll be at one of the breaking points in the book of Ephesians. Remember, it's six chapters. The first three chapters, there are no commands, all except you can't do it. Maybe that's the command. But it's all about what are our resources in Christ? What has God done for us? How does he love us? What price has God paid for us? And then the second half, verses six, seven, I mean, uh, four, five, and six are all about, okay, how does this apply? That's where we'll start in the new year, Lord willing. But remember what happened? It began in chapter 1 where Paul says, God, Jesus, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Him we have redemption. He, he bought us out of slavery and He forgave our sins. And He showed us the mystery of His will. 
He chose us so that we would live for the praise of glory and he marked us with the seal of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's done for us. But you remember what happened in the next week when I pray, when, when I preached? The very next thing Paul does is he includes a prayer. Why? Because he's saying to us all these great things that Christ has done for us to be, we don't get it. And so he says, oh God, please, please help them to comprehend their spiritual riches. These spiritual riches you have made available to them, but they don't get it. You must help them. Because frankly, let's be honest, not a single one of us in this place knows how much God loves us. Can you imagine that God would die for you. God? We wouldn't die for somebody else. You'd die for a loved one. But that God would die for you and for me. That is love that is so amazing. It's, it's unbelievable. That's the truth. The problem is we don't get it. That's why Paul prays. But then, after that, remember, I, I called it the the morgue, the museum, and a workshop. It talks about how we were dead in our sins and we were following the Pied Piper of hell and we were, because of our sins, objects of God's wrath. But God, who was rich in mercy and grace, he's bought us out of slavery and he's seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And then guess what he did? He made us into a new humanity in Christ and he showed us his mystery, which is that Jews and Gentiles are no longer a hierarchy, but now we're all one in Christ. Now in today's passage of Scripture, guess what he's going to do again? He's going to pray. Guess why? We don't get it. We won't get it. Do you really believe that you are part of Christ's inheritance? Do you really believe that the angels look at you and say, Wow, is God great? Do we really believe that? No. We don't. That's why Paul says, I now pray that they'll get it. I pray that they will know who they are in Christ. Because on our own, we don't get it. And so today, we're going to look at Paul's prayer. Because in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the Apostle Paul is going to include another prayer. First question we're going to deal with that Paul answers in the Bible here is, what, what prompted him to pray? Why did he pray? He includes in the book of Ephesians several of his prayers. Why? Well, he wants us to know what he is praying for us, what God wants us to pray for each other and for ourselves. And here's what he says. For this reason, this is verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, when you see something that begins with for this reason, you obviously have to try to figure out what's the reason. Because he says, I kneel. You see, people in that culture did not normally kneel to pray. 
They only knelt to pray when they were deeply, deeply serious and they had a heightened sense of, of feeling. Then they would get down on their knees. Oh God, I beg you, what is it? What is it that caused Paul to get down on his knees? He says, for this reason. What's this reason? Well, the reason is obvious what he's talked about just before. That we who were spiritually dead have been made in, uh, alive in Christ and he's by grace saved us and he's turned us into God's workmanship and he's put us together into Christ, into a family that includes Jews and Gentiles on the same level for this reason because they don't get it. I pray on my knees that they would understand who you are and what you've done. God the Father. God is the Father of us as believers. He's the Father of His people, of course. But there's a sense in which He is, because He's the Creator, He's the Father of all human beings. That's where we get our name. You see, by nature, we're not children of God. By nature, we're children of the devil, the Bible says. But because of what Christ has done, we are able to be called God's children. Why do we pray? Why does Paul pray? Well, he prays because many things in the spiritual realm we simply cannot access or accomplish on our own. We can't do it. But because some of the things that we need to access are very, very important. But there is one person who is able to help us access the spiritual riches, which is ours. That's the Holy Spirit. We're hopelessly dependent. Some years ago, um, back in the 1960s, a book came out by a man named Watchman Nee. Remember the book? It was on the book of Ephesians. It was called Sit, Walk, Stand. It was based on those, those very words from the book of Ephesians. Because in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, sit, and then it says in chapter 4 and several other places, walk, and then it says stand. But interestingly, between the sit and the walk is kneel. You see, the posture that links sitting, that is sitting with Christ in the heavenly places, understanding who we are in Christ, and learning to walk following Christ, that which puts the two together is we kneel. Now, in the Bible, Prayer is done with a bunch of different postures. Remember how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane? He fell on his face. His face is on the ground because of the distress that was so great as he prayed. The Bible tells us that, that David prayed sitting before God. And sometimes you read in the Bible of people who are in incredible grief. They sit in sackcloth and ashes. Abraham, the Bible tells us, stood praying for Sodom. And Solomon, when he prayed to dedicate the temple, the Bible tells us he stood. We read in the Bible about people who pray as they're walking and as they're bowing. But the main way the Jewish people prayed, the main way, is illustrated in Fiddler on the Roof by Tevye with their hands. What's the deal? What's the deal? You could have made me a rich man. Why do I have to be so poor? Why don't you make me rich? 
That's what, remember Tevya? They prayed with their hands. Sometimes they kneeled, but when they knelt, it showed an exceptional degree of earnestness and submission to God and passion and emotion. Paul's prayer is prompted by an awareness that the Ephesian Christians, and us of course, cannot in and of ourselves live out the oneness in Christ. And yet he also knows that this is exactly what God wants us to do. So on his knees, he passionately prays for us. I, I don't know about you, but one of the things I do at the end of most days, not every day, and it, you might think it's just rote, but it's not. I pray the Lord's Prayer. Why? Well, because the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? And this is what he said. But I, I try to do it thoughtfully. Our Father who art in heaven, You're holy, I'm not. Hallowed be your name. I, I, I want your kingdom to come. In fact, that's what we just did with communion. We're saying, Maranatha, come back, Jesus. I want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Take care of my needs this day. Forgive me for my sin. I know you never lead me into temptation, but please deliver me from evil. That's what Jesus said we ought to do. Why? Because <laughs> we're susceptible to evil, to temptation. We tend not to forgive other people who do wrong to us. We forget to thank God for our daily needs, which we get every day. We don't regard God as holy, and we don't really live for his kingdom. We need his help. That's why we pray this. You see, it was these great promises of God that prompt Paul, prompted Paul to get down on his knees. But then you might ask yourself the question, well, specifically, what did he pray for? That's what the next few verses do for us. Now, when you want to see Paul's prayer requests, all you have to do is look for the word that. I pray that, I pray that, I pray that. Couldn't get any simpler than this. So let's see what he says. Here's number one. I pray that, verse 16, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Here's his first prayer request. I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you Christians to tap the riches of salvation and welcome Jesus into your everyday lives. That's my prayer. My prayer is that you will be able to tap this incredible riches that are available to you. You tap them and you'd welcome Jesus into your everyday life through the Holy Spirit. In the 1980s, a very famous book was written entitled My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Munger. This is what he wrote. Without question, one of the most remarkable Christian doctrines is that Jesus Christ himself, through the Holy Spirit, will actually enter a heart, settle down, and be at home there. 
Christ will live in any human heart that welcomes him. So what do you do? Welcome him. My heart, Christ's home. Paul says, I pray that you would become increasingly aware of and in tune with Jesus who lives in you, accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that, that even fathers know how to give good gifts. Even, he says, even bad fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will, the, will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Just to ask. But he goes on. He says, now here's the second thing. Here's the second thing I pray for. This is verse 17 in the middle. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What's his second request? Oh, Heavenly Father, they don't understand how much you love them. I pray that they would be able to apprehend the multidimensional, multifaceted love of Jesus Christ. John Stott, a famous pastor, wrote this. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. It is long enough to last for eternity. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and it is high enough to exalt him to heaven. That's the love of God. Do you know that famous song? Actually, this verse was written in main, very old times, but it was found on the wall of an insane asylum. If we could, with ink, an ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though spread from sky to sky. If the ocean was ink, you could write about the love of God, and you'd drain the oceans dry. That's how big it is. But we don't get it. I'll bet most of you are like me. I suppose that most of us believe that, that God, that Jesus, is pretty much disappointed with us. Yeah, he might know our name, but beyond that we don't amount to much. That's not what God thinks. That's not what God thinks. What does the Bible say? Behold, I have engraved my people on the palms of my hands. Everywhere we're before him. The love of God for us is so much greater than any human being has any knowledge. That's why Paul says, I pray that they will understand the love of God, which we don't. But that's not the, th 
The third one, he prays again. Here's another that. Verse 19. I pray that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now that one we're never going to get. His third prayer request is that we might become like the Father in all his fullness. That's what he prays. I mean, those are big prayers. I pray that they'd understand their riches in Christ. Oh, I pray that they'd understand the love of God. I pray that they would become filled up so that they're like the Father. Remember what Jesus said? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. That's what it says. How in the world do we get to know the love of Christ? Well, the first thing the Bible says, if you want to know the love of Christ, ask. That's why I quoted the passage about the Holy Spirit. Ask. And if you want to know about the love of Christ, I would suggest you, you familiarize yourself with, the, with the, the, the story of the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Just look at Jesus. Look at the way he loved people. It's astounding. Put yourself in those position. Put yourself, whatever kind of person you are, a religious person, an irreligious person, a person who's failed a bunch, you're going to find all of those in the Bible. Watch how Jesus deals with you. Put yourself in the story. See the love of Jesus. Visualize it. Have a sanctified imagination. When we sing the song, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Put yourself in the scene. Visualize it. Were you there? There's a sense in which we were. The Bible says that if you really want to know the love of Christ, one of the things you have to do is trust and obey. This is what Jesus said. If you have my commandments and you keep them, you show that you love me. And if you love me, I will love you. And my Father will disclose myself to you. Obedience is a key to knowing the love of Jesus. It might be one of the first songs we ever learn as Christians, and one of the simplest, but it is one of the most profound and important. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. How strong? Well, that's how the passage ends. Because the question is, well, can, can God answer this prayer? Can God answer this prayer to help us tap the riches of Christ? Can God answer this prayer to make us understand a little tiny bit of the love of Christ? Can God answer this prayer to help us become more and more like the Father? Can He do it? This is how the passage ends. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Can he do it? Oh, he can do that and a, ta a ton more. John Stott, again, he wrote this. He is able to do or to work, for he is neither idle nor inactive nor dead. He is able to do what we ask, for he hears our prayers. 
He is able to do what we ask and think, for He reads our thoughts, and sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not even ask. He is able to do all that we ask or think, for He knows all and can perform it all. He is able to do more than that what we ask and think, for His expectations are much higher than ours. He is able to do much more or more abundantly than all we ask or think, for He does not give His grace by calculated measure. He is able to do much more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, for He is a God of superabundance. Can He do it? Oh, way, 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 way more. Remember David? David prayed to God, Oh God, I would love to have the ability to build a house for you. And God said, No. Why not? Because I've got something way better than that. You're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build your family into the family that gives the world the Messiah himself, Jesus. You're asking for something way too small because I can do way, way, way more. Spiritually, we can't do it. It's impossible for us to pull off living the spiritual life on our own, no matter how hard we try, no matter how disciplined we are. Have you ever... I did this this week just in a very, very brief way. I tried to think my way through the Bible that, that affirms human inadequacy, not adequacy. Remember Genesis 3? Two completely innocent people, Adam and Eve, were unable in a garden of Eden to effectively resist the schemes of the devil. We can't do it either. The Tower of Babel reminds us that People tried to make a name for themselves and God cut it off because we can't do that. Remember, when Abraham was declared righteous by God, what was he doing? Sleeping. The people of Israel were reminded over and over again that God's blessings and his, prov his provision was not a result of their righteousness. In fact, they were an unrighteous people. And those people in the desert who saw the greatest number of miracles in the history of the world turned out to be a faithless generation. Isaiah reminds us that even our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's eyes because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked and we don't even know it. This is what we find in Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We can't begin to fulfill the law because it demands perfection. We can't build the church. Jesus said to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. In, the, in his most incredibly dire hour, Jesus begs his disciples to just stay awake. And they all fall asleep and then run as a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off. Paul reminds us in Romans, there's not a single person that's righteous, not so much as even one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. No one fears God. A guy named Chris Hodge wrote this. If religions have one thing in common, it's that they require us to do something to get to God. 
all except Christianity. So many people, including many Christians, believe that God requires us to make changes before we can approach Him, but that's not true. We don't get our lives together in order to get to God. We go to God to get our lives together. So what are we supposed to do? The answer is in the first cup of promise. He said, I will bring you out. Um, there's a, 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 a very well-known pastor in America today also struggling with pancreatic cancer at the moment. His name is Timothy Keller. I remember reading one time about how he prepares his sermons, and it, st it startled me. He said this, when I prepare a sermon, I go to the Bible, and my first aim is to try to find out what was the original intent of the author who wrote this. That's where we all should start. And then when I look at any passage of the Bible, one of the things that will pop out to you is, what is God asking you to do or to think? And that's where most sermons end. But he said, that's not where I end. He said, the third point that I do with every sermon is, once I point out what the Bible is asking us to do or to think, point number three, and most important of all, is I will then focus on why we can't do it. Point number four, but there is one who did do it. Jesus Christ. Follow him the Holy Spirit. Follow Him. Why? Because we can't do it. Os Guinness is a British Christian sociologist. He wrote this, on the one hand, in matters of the Spirit, nothing fails like success. On the other hand, in matters of the Spirit, nothing succeeds like failure. Our greatest friend as Christians is actually failure. Because when we fail, we realize, I can't do it. But Christ has. And I'm going to, surround, I'm going to clothe myself in his righteousness alone. Well, in conclusion today, as we, I thought maybe it would be a good idea since I've put you all asleep. Maybe we should do some spiritual calisthenics. So would you all stand up and we'll do some calisthenics from the book of Ephesians. Here we go. Because, oh, come on, come on. You guys are... The first thing the book of Ephesians tells us to do is look up. Because the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. The first thing we do is we look up. Because in the creation, we see God's invisible qualities. The first thing we do is we look up. But when you look up, you realize that we are not God. We didn't make anything. So the second calisthenic is we bow low. Okay, bow. Because it is the Bible that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So says our Lord Jesus Christ. Bow low, but then rise up. God has raised us up in Christ. 
And then sit down, because it says, He has seated us in the heavenly realms. Now we're seated. But where? Not on earth. In the heavenly realms. God says we're seated. But then, you don't have to do this one. But if you want, kneel. Paul says, now I kneel. I bow my knees. And once you bow your knees, God says, get up and walk. And then it says, stand. Resist the devil. Stand. We're going to get to that in chapter 6. Stand. And don't do this one. Run. It says, flee sin. Flee. Look up. Bow low. Rise up. Sit. Kneel. Walk. Stand. And run. But let's end by singing. Please remain standing and let's sing as we leave today.